0: Welcome to We Question and Learn. We're now celebrating our 17th year, and over these last 16 years, we've had the honor and privilege of having Mark Amendola, who's the executive director of Perseus House. Well, by the time this hits the air, Mark, this is June. It'll be early July, and uh, maybe the news will change a little bit over the next few weeks prior to broadcast. But first, let me welcome you again to the program.
1: Thank you. It's great to be here. Oh,
0: it's good. It's good. But, uh, what I'd like to do, if we could take a couple of minutes, um, for those who are tuning in now, uh, let me, Mark, uh, remind you one thing. We are now on NPR One, so our, our spread is uh, a little farther than the last time you were on. That's great. Uh, the second thing, we're on uh, also three major podcast distribution systems in addition to that. And I think I was told there were four more after that. So your reach is a little larger than just Erie, Pennsylvania, and Northwest Pennsylvania. So feel free to talk about Percy's House and anything you care to talk about in whatever light uh, that might be appealing to a broader market. But so that people from um, out of our area get to understand a little bit more about you. Uh, you're the executive director of Perseus House, Inc. And if you could frame Perseus House for the audience, that would just be great.
1: Sure, sure. So I am the executive director of Perseus House, located in northwest Pennsylvania. Uh, We have 99 residential beds that are located between Erie, which is right on the lake, County and Crawford County. And primarily um, males and females, ages 12 to 18, that have experienced problems in the community, at home, at school. Some have legal problems, some have um, emotional problems. And our goal is to take them and give them this more family-like environment with evidence-based practices, work with their families to transition them back home. We have community-based programs where we go into schools and we do the lakes of the prevention work with more school-age children that are starting to experience some of those predictive factors that we see, truancy, possible drug and alcohol experimentation, and then we try to catch them early to prevent it high, and we work with their families. We have a diversion program, a court-ordered diversion program where, um, again, 12 to 18, males and females go to court. Um, They have been adjudicated delinquent or dependent. And they then um, are court ordered to a residential facility, typically one of the Pennsylvania facilities. And then it gets deferred. It gets deferred on a daily basis. And then we have a program that's three to four months. uh, They they are case managed seven days a week. They go to their home school. They live at home. And then we provide them with evidence based practices, really to try to try to keep them out of longer term residential programs and really work with their families the community.
0: Mark, how uh, large is your organization? The the task seems uh, immense. The list you presented was very long.
1: Sure. So so we do have actually two there's two business businesses actually there's two boards um Purchase House Inc has 250 275 full and part-time employees. $13 million budget, um, and then there's the charter school. And the charter school um, is an $8 million budget, serves 607th through 12th graders, um, and has about 150 full and part-time employees. So in um, our reach is on the charter school side, Erie County, primarily, although in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, we could accept a student from anywhere in the Commonwealth um, primarily Erie City Schools is where the bulk of uh, students come from. On the residential program, we um, contract only in Pennsylvania, but con- but have contracts with about 54 counties right now and all five of the MCOs that we can bill Medicaid for. And so your, that gives you a sense of the scope.
0: It's, it's huge. Uh, I think um, it's easier for me since I've had the tour and seen most of everything as far as what you do in Northwest Pennsylvania. Uh, facilities. Uh, what, what type of, well, you have the charter school, but you have Perseus house itself.
1: Perseus house. We have 99 beds. We have a shelter for Erie County. Um, children are again, 12 to 18 are either awaiting placement or adjudication. Um, we have a 12 bed mental health program for males. Um, so there's two separate doors from a, fi- from a financial point of view. Helps us from a business model because it really does help diversify our funding sources. But there's a Medicaid funding source that um, a child would have to be deemed medically necessary. That, that treatment is, would be medically necessary by a, by a doctor uh, and then would be directed while in treatment by a psychiatrist. And then we have fee-for-service programs. And those are programs that we work directly with the counties with. And those are Florence Crittenton, as you mentioned. That's a 10-bed facility. Florence Crittenton is a maternity mother-baby program. So we get mothers around anywhere in their second and third trimester. The goal is a healthy pregnancy. And then we can transition to help them to to, to whatever their next, whatever the next level is. and then, again, on the charter school side, um, you know, we really, we have two different sites where we have the charter school located. Originally, 18 years ago, we were doing, as I was mentioning, alternate education for school districts. Typically, they'd be with us for a quarter or a full semester, um, 10 weeks, 10, 12, 14 weeks, and then they'd go back to school, and we're struggling in that environment. Doing okay with us, but struggling. So we started taking a look at, well, what if we could hang on to those, get them earlier Mm -hmm. and hang on to them longer and use our evidence-based practices? And in 2002, we developed the Charter School of Excellence. And um, the original priority group was uh, students that were more than two years behind academically. And the goal was to get them to graduate. But since then, we've developed our Skills Center, which has it um, uh, has a, a dual enrollment program, uh, Mercyhurst University and Gannon University work with us to bring professors in for college credit. We have a graphic design program. We have a music program. We have an art program. So, so the idea is to really begin to create more than soft skills while they're with us. We have a work experience program that everyone can participate in. At any given day, we may, out of 450 high school students, we may have 150 students on the payroll, and 45 to 50 of them are working in the community. So we're really trying to get them to understand the benefit of working while still completing all the requirements for a Commonwealth diploma.
0: And this all started out of uh, someone's house, a fellow by the name of Steve McDermott. On uh, West Twenty Sixth Street in Erie, it did it not did. a very auspicious uh, start. I mean, an honest start, a heartfelt start, but very much. Give us a little history on that.
1: Sure, sure. Steve McDermott, who was from Chicago, um, had some experience working with um, uh, adolescents, delinquent adolescents, and actually on West Twenty Sixth Street, uh, he started he started Percy's House and. Um, They started with six clients, I believe, and actually his wife and his child actually lived in in that house with them as kind of the house parents and really had, I I, I mean, a lot of courage there to take to to, to move this forward to say, this is the vision. If we can, if if children are experiencing problems in the community, at home, in school, and we give them a home-like environment. You know, can we develop competencies, which is still our primary mission, and uh, that we would teach skills while we're working with families to get them to be able to live together again.
0: You know, I like to call your residents students. I think because they are learning a whole new aspect to their life G- physically. The building, uh, your main building, I, 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 what's that like? Is it just offices right now?
1: Yeah, that's a fifteen eleven peak Street. And there are administrative offices. There are central office which houses our administrative staff, finance, IT, HR. Um, still on the peak Street side, it's a 44,000 square foot building, and um, we have 200 of our high school charter school students are there. And then on the State Street side, which is on the other around the block, um, are there 16 beds for our shelter, and then 12 beds for one of our Medicaid mental health programs.
0: So over the years, the need became, I, I shouldn't say so apparent, the need became so great that your organization grew to answer the problems of the uh, community, right?
1: It, we did. I was always concerned that we were not replicating what somebody was always, already doing well in the community. Now, right, if right. there was a need for that, if there was a need for growth, because when I came in 1994, there were 36 residential beds. Um, But what we did was we started to look at kind of the niche programs, you know, programs for um, adolescents with mental health, specific mental health problems. Um, And so we really tried to focus on um, those students that were experiencing significant trauma. Um, We're a trauma-informed care certified site in Pennsylvania. It's called the Sanctuary Model. And we really try to understand. You know, it's not the question of what's wrong with you; it's what happened to you. So, mm-hmm. in development, as you were growing, you know, um, you know, there are we, 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 you may have experienced trauma as a child. Okay. Mm-hmm. However, it's like the likelihood that you healed from that and became a productive, healthy, tax-paying adult um, means that you have healed from that. So there's a lot of research out there, something called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, um, conducted by um, Dr. Vincent Folletti and the CDC, and they looked at the impact of trauma over the lifespan. And if you experienced some type of trauma in childhood, abuse, alcoholic parent, um, uh, emotional, physical, sexual abuse, you know, those, you know, divorce, death, some of those are normal kinds of things, Some of those are abnormal kinds of experiences. However, and they actually looked at what was the impact of that over the life scan. And there's a very specific calculator out to 10. And in the initial study, they found out that if you scored four or more out of 10, you died 10 years earlier in your cohort. Hmm. Hmm. A recent study, the last four to five years in Pennsylvania, actually participated in it. If you scored six or more out of 10, you died 20 years earlier than your cohort so what was the impact for me of when we moved to more trauma-informed care what was the impact of healing from trauma well that became huge because not only are we teaching competencies and skills to both to both kids and parents we if we can help them heal from trauma and there's models out there on we are we have a psychoeducation education curriculum that everybody participates in that is eligible meaning from a screening point of view a clinical point of view um, that helps them really develop healthy relationships and, and, and um, are safe and are able to their, their emotionally manage situations. Um, but then there's something called trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. And so the combination of those help individuals heal from trauma. Mm-hmm. And for me, beyond the teaching of competencies and being able to transition home, we may be putting lot, years on the lives of the kids that we're working with, How how critical is that? Now the important thing is to do it correctly, and we're really focused on the fidelity of delivering those models. But if we can do that, then we actually may put years on their lives.
0: The the scary thing is every year you treat, take care of, or help how many people?
1: Yeah, it's anywhere on any any given year from fifteen hundred to two thousand individual um, clients,
0: and that's. Framing that for a listener who's somewhere else that's in a population of maybe 250 to 270,000 people, that's right. a large number.
1: It's significant and it has grown. Um, you know, we may, we, we potentially, from a business model point of view, we we've, could have probably grown a little bit further. However, just all the federal cuts and, and, and state cuts, you know, have pushed. Um, uh, programs to that are more community based and cheaper because residential programming is not cheap. Right. Right. And so, um, but if it is done correctly, um, I think that it can have a huge impact.
0: I'm trying to understand how you interface with all the other organizations that may do something similar to you. Uh...
1: Sure. So locally there are two other providers like us, um, Harbor Creek youth services, Terry Reed children's center center And we have a collaborative relationship with them where prior to the whole COVID-19, um, we would meet, you know, every other month and talk about their safety and numbers, right? They would experience the same kind of operational problems we would. And, um, so we would just sit down and put our heads together and say, um, you know, these are the problems we're having. How are we problem solving that? It was a good partnership to have because, as the whole COVID-19 started, there were significant restrictions in congregate care. I mean, our Mm -hmm. kids have been locked down since March 13th. And the only reason I know that date, because it's the date that Pennsylvania closed, PD, Pennsylvania Department of Education, closed down public schools. And from that, since that day, we have not had the only staff, the only adults that have gone into our facilities, are Perseus House Inc. employees. So, the, the students have been really safe in terms of exposure. Now, we, we've, and I can say this um, unequivocally, we've had no staff test positive right now, today, as of today. As of today. Um, right. So, <laughs> we are able to really limit the amount of adults that interface in the facility. Uh, to try to mitigate that risk. And that's got to be
0: true of other facilities that are not like you, but uh, provide services as you do.
1: Sure, sure. And you think of, you know, we have a pretty, I mean, our population is not as compromised, as an example, as nursing homes or obviously intensive care. Right. So early on with the whole PPE, the whole protective um, uh, equipment problem, you know, we, we initially, just like all other organizations like us, had some trouble getting some of that equipment, we're in pretty good shape right now um, because we've gotten some help with that. Um, however, because of that partnership, we've been able to expand, expand that relationship so that now we have an every other week meeting, collaborative. It's called residential treatment facility meeting, to really problem solve and and, and we've shared some great ideas with each other because we're all experiencing the same problem.
0: Don't you have? Now, oh, I'm sorry.
1: No, 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 no. Go don't ahead. Don't you have
0: students coming in and out? No, you don't.
1: So. No, not. No. So school on the charter school side, it's school. It's, we, are, we are a public school in Pennsylvania. OK. Um, well, so on March 13th, they stopped coming to school. OK. Right there that shut down. No schools in Pennsylvania are shut down.
0: And explain the to folks what kind of folks, children come to charter school, why it's important.
1: Sure. So in the 90s, there was a movement to really um, give families an alternative. And so um, individual states develop their own charter school law. And um, so an entity could apply to, and there's different levels you can do this. You could apply to an individual district. You could apply to multiple districts for a regional charter. We are a local charter. Mm -hmm. Our charter was issued by the school district of the city of Erie. Mm -hmm. Out of 600 students, 490 are Erie school district and the remainder are the outlying um, uh, suburban kind of school districts. So, but however, um, there is, we are still, we still have to comply with the same Pennsylvania Department of Education, um, regular education, special education, audits, everything that a regular public school would have to um, uh, um, uh, comply with, we have to comply with those same regulations. The difference is, We are smaller. We are designed to be smaller. We have smaller classrooms. Um, The curriculum is very focused. So it depends on what your charter is. And our charter, primarily our charter, is to serve youth that are academically behind. Mm -hmm. That's our main mission. And we have, on any given day, 200 to 250 students that would be more than two years academically behind. So now we have grown that over time because of what the needs of our students have been and the requests of our students. So um, we still serve that population, but we do have a dual enrollment program. We do have the skill site that I mentioned, our work experience program on the charter school side.
0: At a 50,000 foot look, looking down economically, how is all this impacting you?
1: Oh, significantly. Um, You know, because of, um, well, on the school side, um, our enrollment got frozen at that March 13th. Mm -hmm. So we could still admit and enroll students. We couldn't count them in our count for reimbursement. Mm -hmm. So we got, we got frozen at a, at a point in time with enrollment. So that's the first thing on the charter school side, on the residential side, Um, our census has been lower than it typically is at this point in time so there's two things and the reason for that is you know we do have some voluntary sites so some parents just when this happened just took their kids home said i want my child with me at home you know Mm. Um, on the court side this happened in erie county and multiple counties across the state judges wanted to get um, um, kids out as soon as they possibly could. So they need any kids that were close to being discharged got discharged. Mm. So our census went down, which meant our revenue was down. We've spent significant money on protective gear, on disinfectant. I I am paying my staff what we're calling pandemic pay mm-hmm. because now the, the – so normally in the school year and even in the summertime, they're going to – kids are going to school, right? So we have teaching staff and behavioral staff. Well, those staff aren't working right now. So I shouldn't say that they are working because we are doing some academic um, uh, uh, enrichment in the, in the programs. So, but they're not physically present. It's more by virtual um, uh, teaching and instruction. So now we have staff that are in the facilities 24 hours a day with the kids. The kids are locked down, like I said. Mm-hmm. So I thought, I, I, we got to figure a way to reimburse the staff. I mean, you, you've seen this all over the place, right? Um, uh, um, Walmart, you know, increased how much an hour, you know, just for sites where there were more than what they normally bargained for in that job. So, yes. so we've had reduced revenue and increased expenses without a doubt.
0: So to protect the students, obviously you need to protect the teachers. The outside world and all the changes in the rules uh, opening up, so to speak, How is this going to affect you?
1: Uh, What's your opinion on that? Yeah, I, I, you know, at one level, you know, I mean, 40 million people unemployed right now. Um, I don't know what the working number is, but um, that's a huge number of people. Businesses just, you know, that probably aren't going to recover from this. However, if certainly if we are opening too early and there is another wave, then we're going to be shutting down again. So I I don't I'm not saying I know what the right answer is here, Tom. Right? Right. Um,
0: but your position do, to understand what you need to do should it happen.
1: Right. And and we are at the point right now where we're putting together a reintegration plan. We've had these kids have had virtual visitation, mm. but they haven't seen their families. And so when count as counties are counties are beginning to go green, you know we're putting in a plan for. Visitation at the sites, you know, for green to green. You know, you're yellow right now. Um, Crawford County's in green. We're, you know, we have a facility in Crawford County. So we're putting together a plan that if you lived in a green county and your child's at one at the Crawford County facility. Then we have a plan for visitation. Now, that means that has to be scheduled. That has to be in an area where there is social distancing. Everybody's going to have to wear a mask. We will have to disinfect after every single visit. So mm-hmm. it, it's there's significant work to go in to make to mitigate the risk and make everybody so safe.
0: Even if everything opens up, you're still going to have to practice.
1: The fact is that in Pennsylvania's green and and that's kind of a misnomer, isn't it? Because in this business, green, it doesn't even mean go go forward with us. The the Department of Health Regulation of Pennsylvania, green means that congregate care still has all the same restrictions. Now, they Mm. have said that if you can open up for visitation and or home passes while reducing the risk, go ahead and do that. And we're putting a plan for that because I recognize that. It's been a couple months now since children have been able to see their families and we're going to try to figure that out but parents will have to be masked you know children will have to be masked in these visits how do you moderate um, that how do you pretty know Pretty tough Yeah, and, yeah then, well, and then the students gonna, are going
0: to come back to your facility
1: Well they will it's, so it'll be phased in we're only going to start with visitations in the facilities. Okay. Yeah. So it's going to be a phase. You know, and, then, and then once that works out, we know that that's, we, the capacity is correct and we are mitigating risk. Um, then at the direction of the multidisciplinary team, they will start to figure out how therapeutic home passes. Because how do we this, – this has really made it challenging for, home, for family therapy. You know, and one of the criteria that we use for discharge is how well does somebody do when they go home on a weekend pass? Mm -hmm. And there's very specific goals that have to be achieved and we get input from the family. So we're going to have to phase this in to make sure it's all about mitigating risk. You know, it's all about making sure that everybody is as safe as they can be given the circumstances. And this
0: on top of what you need to accomplish. With your constituents, your students, which
1: yeah. is what we're working hard to keep on doing, which is why we had to go to what I'm calling pandemic pay, you know, because my staff have done a great job through this whole thing.
0: Yeah, well, we've seen uh, everything there is to see virtually on television. Uh, it, <laughs> yeah, I think it, you're right it, about that. Yeah, there was no secret <laughs> to this, and and the first yeah. thing that I yeah. thought of was uh, uh, Perseus House, but let's talk about the the 20 or 30 other uh, primary care, what I call primary care facilities, not hospitals, but organizations that deal face-to-face with their constituents. Uh, Erie Homes for children and adults, for example.
1: Same idea, same, same congregate concept. care. Yeah, congregate same care. exact thing. They are congregate care. Well, there's levels, right? Yeah. So nursing home would be the highest risk population, right? They right. would be the highest risk that you see how where these deaths are in in multiple numbers at nursing homes. So that's the highest risk population. But, you know, as we move down, you know, it's all, you know, a nursing home is congregate care, you know, a, um, uh, a psychiatric adult home is congregate care. All of our facilities are congregate care. Now we have an age group that has, you know, that does not have all the secondary diagnoses medically, that other age groups do. So, um, but we still have to do everything that we can do to mitigate that risk.
0: You mentioned that your budgets are cut or you anticipate them being cut because of the reduced amount of services you
1: provide? Well, no, I, um, so right now we are still, we are in the process of negotiating our rates, but because of our census is from month to month is our revenue. So, how you know, we have a budgeted utilization um, that we need to hit to make our budget. And the last two months have been significantly below that just because of all this. And so, we are we are we have been admitting clients through this whole thing. Now, there's been very we've taken no clients from the community, it's the the clients that we have taken have been from congregate care. Well, we know. Somebody can tell them. To, somebody can give us days of temperature and symptoms and all the things that are attached to that. Mm-hmm. So it's really more recovering from the census, from the revenue. Now the expense side is what it is. Although we've gotten some help along the way here, locally the Erie Community Foundation has had grants that have gone out there, and we have re, we have secured one of those grants. So there are some some there are some groups out there that looking. We're submitting. Um, uh expenses every single month to pima um, uh, you know we have secured a, a paycheck protection um, loan so so there are there, there are some there is some help out there um, but that's time limited right that is very at a very specific time to start and at a very specific time to end so so clearly there'll be an impact and then the other ripple effect is What is the impact of the federal budget to the state budget to the county budgets? Because Hmm. everything that we do is either with the Commonwealth or with counties. So what's going to be the impact on their budget and their ability to negotiate rates with us? And that's yet to be seen.
0: Obviously, people have to get back to work, but it's going to take some time before the government revenue stream goes back to normal. I'm sure it's going to take years, actually.
1: I, I would know. think we're yeah, we yeah. we I, I think it's going to be really hard to predict the long term impact. of. And happens.
0: on the medical side, everybody's touting some sort of cure or vaccination. But uh, I just
1: read something. I just saw something yesterday where there are 10 pharmaceutical companies that have in R&D right now, 104 potential vaccines. So there's a lot of money yeah. in this, obviously. Yeah. um but um, I don't think we're going to really understand. The well, when truth you go back to discourse.
0: SARS and some of the other epidemics, it, this caused people to react much more quickly because it was so intense, going right in. Someone got no, sick. Doc. Yeah. No doubt. No
1: doubt. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So let's let's ask, since you have a charter school, well, this may be a difficult question to answer. Would you open a, a school up full of kids? It, What's what's the thought? Right. So
1: there's yeah. clearly going to be no matter what we do here, there's clearly going to be restrictions. So as an example, um, uh, this whole six foot social distancing. Well, think about that as a in a classroom. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's six foot by six foot by six foot by six foot. So that's really thirty six square feet. Yes. So what'll happen is that classrooms will get reduced by student size. Mm. So. A typical classroom that you might have had 20 or 25 students, you may only be able to put 12 or 13. So what does that mean in a building that is pretty, that, that were districts that don't, and many districts don't have extra buildings just sitting around or extra no. classrooms. Yeah. And some so, only last
0: so long, you can only sit kids in the
1: parking lot. That's so correct. Long. That is correct. So yeah. there's going to absolutely have to be restrictions. That's going to be one. Do we go to a blended half-day model, online model, um, yeah, masking yeah. middle school children all day? Um, there's a lot of considerations here. So, well,
0: you have a tremendous uh, food education curriculum. You have a, a wonderful facility that teaches that topic. Uh, how do you feed kids in a school?
1: Right. Yeah, we're working on that right now, and it's going to be challenging. Um, yeah, to say the least, work. We're, but we're taking, I'm, I will tell you that the Erie County Department of Health has been wonderful. Good, and Shar good. Berenger and her group has been, have, have given us, first of all, they've been very responsive and the guidance has been clear. I could tell you that at some of the other levels, the guidance has been somewhat ambiguous or vague. Um, the Erie mm-hmm. County Department of Health has been just wonderful. So we've relied on them. Um and so we've submitted them we've submitted our plans to them and said, Hey, please eyeball this and tell us what you think and they're very clear about what the guidance should be. So so that plan, you're right, that plan is gonna be very specific um to operation.
0: Have you chatted with some of the other organizations in the community? Whatever. We
1: Scholastic. Yeah, we have, I, yeah. yeah, I I mentioned that we've we certainly talked to districts and yeah. I mentioned that collaborative group um yes. uh with some of the other RTF providers and and, and the problems are similar, right? Um, so that's one of the reasons that we continue to get together because You know, we can problem solve. Um, We all have similar kinds of experiences. And if we can problem solve to get to those answers, we're going to be in a much better place.
0: Let's go one step further. You obviously are connected to many, I'm sure several important national organizations. Have you heard anything from them at all?
1: So we have, actually. So as as an example, we train aggression replacement training, one of the evidence-based curriculums out there. And um, uh, Penn State, um, the Evidence-Based Intervention Prevention Center at Penn State, provides technical support to um, sites in Pennsylvania. And, um, you know, one of the things that's interesting to me is the whole virtual um, uh, um, education part of this. And we've developed um, fidelity protocols for virtual group facilitation. And it's interesting because I think that, uh, as we were probably talking before we actually started here, it's interesting that um, it, 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 even though the technology is out there, um, not everybody has a skill set to use it. I firmly yes. believe yes. that on the back side of this, we're going to use technology in a much different way. And hopefully, hopefully, to our advantage, uh, there is a lot of benefit to sitting in a room. And watching body language and eye contact and oh, yeah. everything that goes along, among with that. other things. Among other things. Let however, me just say, I
0: was talking to a m- mature group of people who, in, and they were saying, "Oh yeah, let's get on this Skype or whatever." I don't want to diss any one um, online meeting uh, media. And, and a person said, "Well, if I don't like this, I just go do something else. That's funny. <laughs> Turn the video that's- off." And, That's funny. And the last meeting I was in, there was only four videos on, and everybody was listening. So, I, you know, it's too easy. Um, it is. Learning it is. is a two-way street. It's too it's easy like, to sit in front of a computer and just change the channel mentally, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. You are absolutely right. But to answer your question, though, we have had some of. We've had had some of those communications, and the yeah. fact is, everybody is experiencing the same type of problems. In larger metropolitan areas, that may be larger kinds of problems, the scope of it, but the content of it is the same. You know, the you know kids that are locked into the, locked down into their houses, um, trying to educate students, trying to do the virtual group. You know, there are kids in Pennsylvania that are on corridors to go to community-based programs that have been shut down. Yes. So yeah. how can you provide the part, at least some of what you're doing virtually? So. The problems are very similar no matter where you live. Certainly the size, the scope may be larger, but very similar problems.
0: I just heard of a collegiate organization that they went pass-fail. No grades anymore.
1: Well, we did that, honestly, in our charter school for the last quarter. That was some of the guidance from PDE. Ah, But mm -hmm. um, to try to really be fair to students without having all the pieces and benefits that you have in a physical plant building we did exactly the same thing.
0: Your organization solves huge problems in the community. You know, our younger folks are our seed capital for the future. How do you think this is going to affect the community a few years from now?
1: Yeah, I, I, that that's a great question. Um, and I don't know that I know the answer to it. I, I know this, that you've asked me this question a couple of times, more than a couple of times. And I keep going back to the same thing, which is that um, we learn so much in our families and families nowadays look so different than when you and I grew up. Mm -hmm. And I think that if we can support families, no matter what the formation of that is, I think that becomes critical. Parents have power. And oftentimes they either give it away or let their children take it or whatever that might be. So I think the more that we can support families, where did you learn? I'm going to suspect you learned some of your skill sets that you have, Tom. You were pretty skilled. Oh, uh, well, you know,
0: either discipline or you just fell off the
1: cliff. That's funny. That is funny.
0: (laughs) And I'm not making fun of valuable experience to learn what life
1: really. Yeah, there's no, there's many problems. So, but. If we can support families, if there's some way that we can continue to support families so that for even if we just thought about just arbitrary use, 18 years old, 18 years is a long time. okay. and if we can support families to teach their kids how to then transition, how to how to learn competencies, how to problem solve, how to cope, all the things that go along with that, we're going to be in a much better place. So the more we can support families to do that, I think the better off we're going to be.
0: Over the years, I've learned so much from you, how your organization and partner organizations and other organizations help the young people in our community. And I always ask you the, the big question, where do you see your organization in five to 10 years? What, what, even in a few years, what do you think you will be doing different? What, what's yeah. changing, if at all, if at all?
1: Yeah, I, I don't know that we'll be doing a whole lot different mm-hmm. than mm-hmm. what we do because we provide residential and educational services. Um, Do I think we could, I think the market is saturated on the residential side and it's a, it's a not a cheap day. Right. Mm -hmm. I think on the educational side, I think there is some room for development on that side. Um, I think we still need to have a footprint in the community. It's not an accident that we are located at 1511 Peak Street, Mm -hmm. which is called the Collaborative Community Learning Center. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we want families to be able to come there. We have a parent group when we're live (laughs) every Thursday. Mm -hmm. Um, We have weekend programs there so I just, I will, and I'm retiring, right? I'm going to be re- retiring here in about within six months. Mark, so. you
0: could have fooled me because I <laughs> see people retiring and they're out gardening and uh, <laughs> yeah, waiting for funny. the drop dead date. And yeah, then, that and, I'm not, that w- I'm not going to w- do. Without, but, w- w- so people know, I, I see you now working even more diligently, than not that you weren't diligent, but you're, you're more concerned than ever.
1: Yeah, because, because we got we to keep our eye on the ball. You know, I uh, Mark DePlacito, who you know, who mm-hmm. was our chief operational officer and is retired now, used to talk often to staff about the corners need to stay 90 degrees. Yeah, and the minute yeah. that they start getting rounded off, we're missing the picture here. So um, I think the focus of that, and, and, and that means everybody doing their job the way they need to do their job. So I think there's a lot of work. Um, I think we got to pay attention to it. And that's where I see it, you know, just the focus of all that. I
0: believe that you did not have to do much direct fundraising. You live off the good benefit of the state who finds you valuable, the school districts, et cetera, find you valuable. Do you think your mechanism for developing a budget is going to change?
1: I think that not the mechanism for developing a budget, but I think the revenue will continue to shrink down. And when I it's really not shrinking, it's just not getting rate increases because that's where we uh, because there's, you know, um, cost of living, you know, we have 27 vehicles, you know, all the expenses that go into that those consumable kinds of things. So so what that means is that we got to continue to work smarter. You know, the last thing I want to do is cut staff out of the out of the budget. Um, Because those are the people that are doing the work. And that's not
0: just uh, out of worry for the staff. That's out of worry for the students. That's correct. The people you you care
1: for. You are absolutely saying that correct. Because um, it's just they they provide the service. They they provide it. So these
0: these students can't be left alone.
1: Right. Should not be left alone. You're right. You're exactly right. So. So I think that the the it's not so much the way the money is, it's just the pool is only so big. I think the way that we look at it and administratively, we just got to keep managing that administrative budget because that's the really the only place you're able to have any impact.
0: I keep watching that TED Talk from 2015 where Bill Gates sort of prognosticated I
1: this see- whole thing. I don't know if you have seen it. I have seen it. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? It,
0: it? was scary. And every time I watched that, I, okay, that was 2015. That's Bill. Of course, he could write a few checks himself. I sure. think he gives away over 300 or $400 million a year, probably yeah, more than amazing. that, because he's part of the polio eradication program. And I think this year alone, he gave over $140 million and $380 wow. million to date. But my point being is that he's very concerned about students and children as you are. Yes. But he, he prognosticated this. What did we do wrong? Or is this the wake-up call for you to develop a plan for, for another contingency five years from now?
1: Yeah, I think it's probably a combination. Mm-hmm. Um, we all could have probably been better prepared, just in total honesty, because um, we know it's going to happen. Um, so I think it's probably a combination of that. And then, really, I would compare it a little bit to to, um, uh, the whole 2000. We thought the whole world was going to shut down, right? And come midnight, uh, you know, January 1st, 2000. The clocks are supposed to stop. We (laughs) got water. We got blankets. We we made sure that we had everything in case all the computers went down and we couldn't do whatever, you know? Well, I think of Ebola.
0: I think of SARS. We survived that.
1: Yeah. And, and so we just have to be hypersensitive and be in a place where when, you know, I would compare it to when all this first started, you know, now we're almost, well, in the last four or five days, it hasn't been the first thing on the news, you know? So we're almost becoming a little desensitized. So I think our hypersensitivity to what it is, what it could be, we need to keep that in the forefront because I I think we all
0: should read what happened in, um, 1918 through... With the Spanish flu or... Yeah, the big epidemic killed a right. third of the population of the country. It Actually, they were wearing masks early in the year. And by the end of summer, boy, I hope this is not a prediction. Everybody just got sick of it and stopped.
1: And stopped doing it. And right. this
0: thing spreaded right into, uh, well, it was 1918 into 1919. And 19. I'm not sure how it mitigated by just uh, hurting everyone that could possibly be
1: hurt. Yeah, but does it, is it like... Two thirds of the population have to be exposed. Sixty percent. If you, you, there you go. Yeah, the, yeah. the
0: number I hear, uh, I find it right. incredible. That if sixty percent of everybody gets this, and then I almost thought that maybe politically the solution is to let sixty percent get there. But, but I think we're very fortunate, Eric, because we did not see what happened in the nursing homes. For and sure. In the, in the, uh, I think of the Bronx, Staten Island. I think of those communities where everybody lives in a high-rise and they were debating how many people to let up and down the elevator at one time.
1: Amazing. And we're very lucky,
0: you know, we're
1: very, we, we are very, I think I would agree that we're very lucky with where we live. There's no doubt about it.
0: Um, So as you go forward, you, you plan every day, virtually you're on call, right?
1: I I've been working every day. The first two weeks, we probably worked 80 hours. We worked on Saturday and Sunday and have great staff and have, Great physicians, Dr. Albans Borzon, our psychiatrist and one of our medical directors, Chris Serafini, Dr. Serafini from St. Vincent's, who does Mm -hmm. um, uh, does well care visits for us in our shelter, gave us great guidance um, through this whole thing. So we had great medical staff and I don't know that every site like us has it, but we have had great direction in terms of what to do and how to do it. And so it's starting to become more um, uh, the norm right now. So I think the kids are getting used to it. The staff are getting used to it. But like I said, we're working on a reintegration plan because you know, what happens when we start to have visitations, which we will shortly and start to have home passes for kids to transition home. So, yeah, so it's constant. There's no doubt about it.
0: One last time, how many total employees are in your organizations?
1: So close to 500 full and part-time. Um, and yeah, and and one, and the good news is that, through this whole thing, we laid off eight people, seven people for 30 days and they're back at work.
0: So you're full so force
1: again. We were always almost full force. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we were, like I said, there was, because of the, on the education side, we had a group of people that just, there was not a need for, cause they were part, and they were part-time by the way, they weren't full-time people. Mm-hmm. So, but within 30 days, they were back at work. So, we kept everybody working, kept everybody with their health benefits, kept everyone getting paid a little bit more, like I said, because of the pandemic pay. So that's crucial to me because these are families that have um, or these are individuals that have families that need health insurance. And we've been able to maintain all that through this. And logistically,
0: so, temperature in. Measure the temperature coming in.
1: Well, everyone. we don't, but we have that screening. Well, we when we do visitations, we absolutely what well, we say temperature in we are talking about staff. It's Front our door, staff. Yeah, your staff so, coming
0: into work every day.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a whole checklist. As soon as checklist, if okay. they're at home... Yeah, if they're at home and they're having symptoms, they're not coming to work, right? Yeah, so they have to yeah, be medically
0: oriented people, aren't they?
1: Yeah. They are and they're yeah. going to they're going to go see their physician. Their physician's going to give us with the direction and with all that. However, when we start doing visitations, we absolutely will be taking chapter temperatures. We'll be finding out have they traveled? Have they been on an airplane, you know? Yeah. Some of these questions, some of the if you look at some of the guidance we added, have you traveled by plane? Because who knows you who you might be exposed uh, to if you were on a plane.
0: As of so, this recording, they were just starting to wear masks three, four weeks ago. It was,
1: on planes, correct. It, was, so, it,
0: it overwhelmed me. I couldn't believe yeah, it.
1: Yeah. I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. right. So it's a new normal, as people would say. I hate to kind of say that, but that's what it is. It and, is yeah. and, and like I said, my staff have done a great job as they're just adjusting to all of well, that.
0: Well, your staff are excellent. Thank you for this great interview, and I think uh, if I could say that if you walk around and really open your eyes, the people of Erie are pretty cognizant of what's going
1: on. I think there's no doubt about that. If you, yeah, I mean, if you look at these places, you hey, go place you go, people are wearing masks and they're yeah. paying attention. Uh, you know, you see on TV places where people don't have masks on. And then, you know, I, the mask is what it is, but it's, it makes sense, okay? Yeah. And you see these other areas of the country where mm-hmm. people are all jam-packed together. And I, I don't get it, Tom. I don't totally yeah. understand it.
0: Well, I'm honored to have you for this amount of time. I know you got to run. I appreciate this. I'll call you again sometime. Hopefully, we can sit in the studio great. and have coffee. the next That time would be good. Out. That would mean oh, that, that more it's fun. mitigated. So. Yeah, of course, uh, we'll great. have masks on, and the coffee cups will have tops on them. But, that, that's, <laughs> that's, funny. Another, but that's another way to go. It's but uh, I learned so much today about how a complex organization is dealing with a very critical topic. And it sounds like you have... All your ducks in a row. Everything's going. We're doing
1: well, okay. Well. I, yeah. yeah, I think we're doing okay. And you're so, serving an
0: important uh, part of our society. You're bringing people back in line with being productive, being good productive people.
1: There's no doubt. That's the yeah. goal. So That's as mean, always, yeah. thanks a lot, Tom.
0: Advocate. Thanks, Mark, and thank you for joining the
1: program. Sure thing. You take it easy.
2: This is jeff hanley host of jazz happening now each week we listen to some of the latest jazz recordings and i think you'll be thrilled by what today's jazz musicians are doing and say the recording industry has changed but the music is as alive and as vibrant as ever the future of jazz is happening right now if you just listen and please do sunday night at six on wqln radio WQLN Radio presents Poetry Minutes, original poems read by the poets. Abdullah Washington, Words. I lack faith in the power of words. I have faith in the Creator. Words ain't a thing. Words are often wasted.
1: But if I stopped writing, it wouldn't save even one tree. For every lie that can be destroyed, someone can make ten more. Truth is infinite, but for us, misunderstandings seem even more so. The pen may be mightier than the sword, but it also has a higher learning curve. I don't have faith in life, I have faith in the living. Life ain't a thing. Lives are often wasted, but if I stopped living, it wouldn't save even one person. It is easy to kill, easier still to die, and birth is slow and difficult. So, here's to the living. More WQLN Radio Poetry
0: Minutes are at wqln.org.
3: I'm Michelle Martin. These days, it seems like just about everybody is choosing sides and doubling down on talking points. Here at NPR, we try to cut through the noise with meaningful and respectful discussions with people from all perspectives, backgrounds, and walks of life. Join the conversation every weekend on All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: Saturday and Sunday afternoons at 5 on WQLN Radio.
3: Here's today's edition of Health in a Heartbeat. Among the many angst-producing aspects of being a teenager is acne. For some, it's at the top of the list. Most people outgrow the problem, but acne in adults can be a significant and life-affecting condition. A study sheds new light on what has long been considered a cause of the troubling outbreaks. Researchers at the University of Paris in France report a significant connection between a diet heavy with fats and carbs and a person's level of acne. Using online surveys, they asked nearly 25,000 adults about their experiences with acne in the past and present. Nearly half reported having acne before or now. Next, they asked participants to complete three reports of their dietary intake over 24 hours, six months apart. The researchers examined the average daily intake across several groups, including fruit, vegetables, meat, fish, milk, dark chocolate, milk chocolate, refined cereals, snacks, and fast foods, as well as fatty and sugary products. They also listed the daily intake of vitamins, zinc, fibers, carbohydrates, lipids, proteins, and saturated fatty acids. The results show that consuming just one sugary beverage or glass of milk per day equated to a 54% higher chance of the adult having acne. The findings are in line with previous studies that link diets rich in animal products and fatty and sugary foods to higher levels of adult acne. The next time is to study how manipulating a person's diet might impact their level of acne. Maybe you'd like to turn back the clock to your carefree teenage years while skipping the acne phase. Changing your diet can help with that. Fitting into your old bell bottoms is a topic for another segment. This edition of Health in a Heartbeat is brought to you by University of Florida Health and by WUFTFM. For more information or to subscribe to our weekly e-newsletter, please visit our website, heartbeatradio.org.
2: This is Bird Note. In the desert southwest, summer temperatures sizzle, rising well over 100 degrees. And in some parts of the desert, there is not a drop of water for miles. Yet some birds thrive in this scorching landscape. Here, a black-throated sparrow sings from the thorn scrub. Now, a cactus wren announces itself atop a barrel cactus. And neither will be flying miles every day to the nearest source of water. So how do they survive? Birds, like all animals, perish without water. Desert birds, however, make the most of very little. They tuck into the shade in the heat of the day so they won't lose water in panting. They have extremely efficient kidneys so they excrete almost no liquid. And they obtain moisture from foods, like nectar and fruit, as well as insects and other prey. Even when eating primarily seeds, black-throated sparrows are able to extract enough water from this dry food that they may never need to take a drink. Still, when that next late summer thunderstorm arrives, you have to think, those temporary puddles are going to look mighty refreshing. Support for Bird Note comes from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, presenting its new Bird Photography online course featuring Melissa Grew. Learn more at academy.allaboutbirds.org. WQLN Passport is a WQLN members-only benefit that provides access to an on-demand streaming library of public television programming. More information is at wqln.org slash passport.